You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, we're on holy ground when we're opening your word and we get to be in your presence. And so we bow in humble adoration and worship for who you are as the giver of your word and life and all that we need for this life and the life to come. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will minister to each of our hearts as we spend time in First John. Please hide me behind the cross of Jesus. And Lord, we thank you that you blessed Pastor Holmes to serve you for 93 years. What a testimony that was. And we ask that you'll comfort and encourage all of our hearts as we spend this time together at your feet. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin our message today in 1 John 4, verse 8. Share a little tribute as we get into our seminar. 1 John 4, 8. And we see this in Pastor Holmes' life. After I read the verse, I'll share what, what has taken place today. And, uh, 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So this morning, Pastor Holmes woke up and he had a difficult night last night. Some of you know that he was here at his seminar yesterday. And um, I started to sing softly and tenderly to him, Jesus is calling. And um, a few hours later, he passed away peacefully in his sleep. So... He's now resting in Jesus, and his daughter knows, and his daughter um, said that I, she's given me his Bible, and he had already given me his notes, and so I just want to share this, this tribute to remember him at this time, and then we'll get into our, our message. I thought it'd be nice to also, um, as we close today, sing his favorite hymn, which was Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. So praise the Lord for the 93 years that he served Jesus with a willing heart and a love for the, the word, regardless of where that would lead him. Let him out of the Lutheran church, into the Seventh-day Adventist church, um, into the mission field in the Philippines, to various congregations in Michigan, and since 1994, pastoring in his retirement in the very town where his wife, Shirley, grew up. So I'm thankful that I've had the seven years to minister along his side, and the mantle has been passed but the message will go forward with greater power and love because um, even in death, um, God still ministers to us through his servants because their words continue on and their message continues to reach hearts. And so the books that he wrote and the sermons he preached and the lives that he touched are going to continue to be blessed. So just pray the Lord comfort our hearts. I will admit I've shared, shed a few tears this morning, um, but I'm, I'm steadfast in the word. And I can't think of a better way to honor um, the Lord and his memory than to get right into the message that he loved. So let's delve into the scriptures together. <clears throat> Though First John was written near the end of the first century, John's thoughts as an apostle and prophet were on the close of earthly history. Specifically on, and we go to First John 2 verse 18, so this is where we get our theme for our seminar title, The Church of the Last Hour, 1 John 2.18. And I'm using the English Standard Version of his Bible that he used for many years, where the scriptures tell us, Children, it is the last hour. 
And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. So here in this last hour church, we see that we're close to the return of Jesus. And so go to verse 28, same chapter, 1 John 2, 28. The scriptures tell us, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So that's our glorious hope. We need to remember that John was close to Jesus. He traveled with him. He watched him as he ministered to the needs of the people and of his disciples. John had heard the promise of the Lord's return from Jesus himself. Surely John was there with the rest of the disciples. When Jesus said, and we turn to Matthew 16, 27. We're having our Bible study together here, Matthew 16, 27. My style is a little different than Elder Holmes was. I often like to invite everyone to turn there in their Bible, give you a few moments to turn there so you can see it in your own um, text that you have there, whether it's a paper copy or a virtual copy. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So we see that um, there's going to be God's faithfulness to give us what, what he's done through our lives. John in his gospel quotes Jesus' words to the disciples in John 14, 3. You can turn there. I'm sure we're familiar with this beautiful text and how fitting it is today as Pastor Holmes passed away a few hours ago, June 16, 2022, here at Camp Meeting. John 14, 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So later in the, the Bible's last book, John says in Revelation 1, verse 7, if we turn over there, these words, and this will be Pastor Holmes' next conscious thought, is seeing the clouds, seeing Jesus. Praise the Lord. That's the glorious hope. I have to admit, even though I've cried a little bit today, I, I can't restrain the happiness that, 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 that there's no more suffering for him, and we're going to be with Jesus forever. Revelation 1.7 Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So John's word on this is the Bible's last word. And we see this in Revelation 22 and verse 20. Because, of course, John the Beloved wrote Revelation as well. Revelation 22, verse 20. Almost the last verse of the whole Bible. Second to last verse. The scriptures tell us, he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. So now John is an old man overjoyed with that hope. And I just have to pause here. That's what Pastor Holmes was. I see a lot of parallels to John to Elder Holmes. You know, we don't know the exact age of John, but he lived to be very aged, and he, from what we know, died a natural death. And that's what Pastor Holmes had too. And just as the church the last hour will do, he lives his last hours in the throes of political, social, and religious turmoil. And that's the times that we're living in now as well. The parallels are just incredible. 
But John's mind does not dwell on the signs, but on that to which they point, and on the church of the last hour. Why? Well, it's because during the time of the last hour and just before the return of the Lord, there is a job to be done, a mission to be fulfilled, to be finished. And in order for the church of the last hour to do that, it must be able to distinguish between the spirit of truth, go to 1 John 4 and verse 6. This is a key text here. 1 John 4 and verse 6 for us to discern. 1 John 4 and verse 6 where the scriptures tell us, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That's 1 John 4, 6. So to know the difference and take an uncompromising stand with truth no matter what is what we're called to do. Furthermore, that church must be prepared to meet the demands that are required by the mission to be fulfilled and finished during the last hour. This letter of 1 John is most relevant for the Protestant churches of today, churches that developed on the basis of the Reformation principle of sola scriptura, the Bible alone as the authority for faith and life, on which they have historically based their confession. God used Protestantism to revive Christianity after the Dark Ages. However, sad to say, some of the great Protestant churches in the face of two major anti-Christ religious powers are abandoning sola scriptura and in the process scuttling the Reformation, fulfilling the characteristics of the churches that John identifies in Revelation 17. Let's turn there. Revelation 17, verses 4 and 5. Revelation 17, verse 4 and 5. Fulfilling these characteristics. Revelation 17, beginning in verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations, and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, and of earth's abominations. So John identifies this as the prostitute harlot and the daughters of the woman he called Babylon the Great. As C. Mervyn Maxwell points out in his marvelous commentary on Revelation, God Cares, Volume 2, no daughter is born a prostitute. They choose to become so. It is a step-by-step -step process of compromise ending in apostasy. One of the most disastrous of those steps on the part of Protestantism was buying into what is known as the historical critical method of Bible interpretation, in which doubt predominates over faith and the biblical message is questioned from an increasingly secular base. Because of their retreat from sola scriptura, there are three things in this letter that today's Protestant churches find exceedingly difficult to deal with. Let's look at the first one. For one, the close relationship between faith in Jesus Christ and the keeping of God's commandments. And secondly, the difference 
between practicing righteousness and practicing lawlessness. And thirdly, the conflict between the Spirit of God and the Spirit of the Antichrist. In the light of the last hour, John warns the church he loves of the great danger to its message and its mission. The deception introduced by the Spirit of the Antichrist. The same spiritual power that opposes Christ, which Paul speaks of as the mystery of lawlessness and the lawless one, whose appearance, Paul says, if we turn to 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 7, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 7, as we identify this lawless one, what's described here, 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 7 through 10. And the scripture reads, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Here we see that Satan is the power behind the lawless one, the spirit of the Antichrist. His method is deception that is wicked, and he appeals to those who refuse to love the truth. If we turn over to Revelation 12, 9, to John's words, we see that John says the following, Revelation 12 and verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So all deception has its origin in Satan, the arch enemy of God. The direction is away from God's revealed truth. How? By outright rejection or by denial or by the addition of human philosophy and or ecclesiastical tradition or by reinterpretation or all of these and then attempting to persuade others to believe a lie. Did John know this when he wrote the words we will now read? What do you think? Let's turn to 1 John 2 beginning in verse 18, we'll go up through verse 26. 1 John 2, starting in verse 18, up through 26. As we ask ourselves the question, did John know this, what Satan was trying to do when he wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? 1 John 2, beginning in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming so now many antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, 
but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Now we will turn to 1 John 4, 1 through 6, as we continue the Apostle John's words here under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. 1 John 4, beginning in verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So we ask the question again, did John know this when he wrote the words that we just read? What do you think? Just, yes, absolutely. He was seeing already at that time the movement away from Scripture and tradition creeping in and compromise, and he was obviously concerned for the church the last hour, which would apply even more to our time than John's own time. Here is the great controversy as it affects the very faith and lives of the members of God's church, impacting its message and mission in the critical time of the last hour. Here is the great struggle for truth that will determine whether or not the church is fully prepared to meet the demands of its mission in that final hour of history. John is the only New Testament writer who uses the term Antichrist. It has two meanings, against, meaning opposing Christ, and instead of or in place of Christ. John here does not specifically identify the Antichrist. He leaves that up to us who, if we are interested and concerned enough, and the last hour church ought to be, will search for biblical and historical evidence, especially the books of Daniel and Revelation, comparing God's word with the record of events from their time up to the time of the last hour, drawing what, for the believing Bible student, ought to be obvious conclusions. What does John tell us is that the presence of the spirit of the Antichrist and false prophets are proof that it is the last hour. If we read again verse 18, 1 John 2, 18, Children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. 
Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. But to know this is not enough. To know it should set alarm bells ringing, causing that church to be most diligent. To know the truth, so as we read in 1 John 4 verse 5 again, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. So we need to overcome, as thankfully he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. But to know, as we've seen, is not enough. So John is now calling our attention to one of the effects the spirit of Antichrist has on the church that's faced with the demands of the last hour mission. Really, this is the saddest of all. It makes us weep, as we read in 1 John 2.19. And maybe we can even think of individuals we care deeply about that this happened to, 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. The temptation was very strong not to deal with this, to tiptoe around it. But we can't do that because this is central to 1 John and to the theme of this series of messages. We would not do justice to 1 John if we ignored it. He's talking about defection, about abandoning loyalty to the church of the last hour, its message and mission. He's saying the faith of those who went out was not firm enough, not fully established in the truth. Hence, easily swayed, persuaded by the Antichrist and the false prophets to believe a lie. Furthermore, the fact that they went out indicates that they were really not of us. Otherwise, they would not have been persuaded by lies, but would have continued with us. Is this not the sad experience of the remnant church? We all know former members that have left us, laymen, pastors, teachers, theologians, relatives. Some of our best friends have become our greatest enemies. We feel that they have betrayed us, even reminding us of Judas, who betrayed his Lord for a few pieces of silver. Only a friend can betray you. But in reality, it is God's truth that is betrayed and not us. They cause trouble for former brethren. So we ask, why is it that people are more ready to believe the stuff they often read on the web than the testimony of Scripture alone? Now, you may be thinking, and of course these are Pastor Holmes' words, Pastor Holmes, you left your former church. Isn't that the same thing? Because he was a Lutheran. Why didn't he stay faithful to the Lutheran church? Well, as he would go on to write, I'm sure some would see it that way. But the Protestant church, and I'm quoting Pastor Holmes here, I was a part of, was in the process of abandoning Sola Scriptura, and still is. But I was determined to stay with the Bible, and still am. And we can say that he chose that to his final breath, which was just a few hours ago. Praise the Lord that he finished his good fight of faith, standing on the solid word of God. Can you say amen? Yes, his wife had a finished Lutheran heritage. And Dr. Holmes, I'll just pause here where we are in our, our message because he gets very personal here. And um, his wife was raised in a very um, devout Lutheran family in Wakefield, Michigan. Whereas he had a, a background where his family were not Christian. 
and his mother died at a fairly young age, actually around the same time my mom died in, in terms of age. My mom died when I was 15. He lost his mother about the age of 15. And um, his father uh, taught him about bricklaying, and it was somewhere in his early teens or early adulthood that he decided to start attending a Baptist church. And I remember him saying that for some reason the messages just didn't feed him. He was wanting something deeper in the Word. And then he would go to a, a Lutheran church um, near where he grew up in um, Waukegan, Illinois. Remember, that's where he grew up. So that was his experience, um, Lutheran. But uh, he didn't abandon the faith. He just let, he was willing to let the Holy Spirit lead him where the scriptures were guiding, which was to a church that's still preaching the Bible. And I would just say this um, as, as you know, my testimony, let's as Seventh-day Adventists stay faithful to Sola Scriptura. No matter what movements or winds of doctrine are out there, we cannot abandon the faith now. Now more than ever is the time to stay faithful to the end. So thankfully his testimony was to determine, he determined to stay faithful to the Bible. And uh, I'm quoting him again. He said, and at this point, uh, last fall, he of course penned these words a few years ago, um, Shirley and I were invited to attend a meeting with some members of our former denomination who were concerned about things that were happening in their church, especially about the retreat from Scripture alone. And now I'll pause here, and this is Pastor Sean Brisnine sharing. I actually had the privilege to go with him and Shirley to some of those meetings. And they would hold them in different places, and it was gatherings of, you could say, Lutherans that wanted to stay more faithful to Scripture. And um, I don't know if they're still meeting, but at one point they even asked if they could hold their gathering in our Seventh-day Adventist church in Bessemer, which was a real blessing, a real open door to, to connect with them on a, a spiritual level. So praise the Lord. Um, both Shirley, who passed away um, May 3rd, 2021, and Pastor Holmes, who passed away today, June 16, 2022, uh, stayed faithful to the scriptures and uh, would have wanted as many other Lutherans that they loved and cared about from their, their former church and denomination to do the same. And I believe that there are many honest-hearted people in these other churches that are following up to the light that they have, and they're doing it conscientiously. And God's going to bring, bring his fold together as we approach the coming of Jesus. So Elder Holmes continues in these words. He said, I asked one of them if it could be considered a form of apostasy um, as they were retreating from Scripture, and the answer was yes. The next obvious question, what does God tell us to do in such a situation? Well, the answer, if we adhere to sola scriptura, is found in Revelation 18.4, which you can turn there. And of course, John the Beloved penned these words. Revelation 18.4, what to do in this situation. Revelation 18, verse 4. <clears throat> and the scripture tells us, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her Plagues, and God does not want us to be a part of those plagues. So, if we participate in the work of apostasy and deception, we will ultimately experience the ultimate consequence, which is judgment. So, there's a big difference, after all, between falling for the deceptive lies, lies of the Antichrist and false prophets, and obeying the call of God to come out. So, is the distinction clear? One is a response to lies and deception. The other response to the call of God based on his word alone. The choice is up to each one of us. 
and it's all part of preparing the church of the last hour to meet the demands of its mission. Concerning the return of the Lord and the events that precede it, the Bible tells us in these words, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3. Let's turn there. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3. It's nice to hear those Bible pages turning as we delve into God's word together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and are being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So from these words, we see that the call in the Bible is not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter or a website or wherever the source of information is coming from. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion, in the King James Version states, a falling away, and the ASB translation would give apostasy comes first. That must precede the coming of Jesus. Apparently, this prophesied, though sad, experience is part of that preparation. It doesn't weaken the church. It is intended to make her stronger. Why? No room for vacillation now. Things are getting serious. Those left are more united, more certain, more determined to remain faithful to Bible truth no matter what. As an example, by way of illustration, Nebuchadnezzar's image stood on feet of iron and clay which cannot mix, weakest part of the image which it stands on and where it stands. Truth and falsehood cannot be mixed. If you try, what do you have? Half truth? No, you have falsehood and lies. So if we turn to Daniel 2, 33 and 34, look at this portion of that great Daniel image. Daniel 2, 33 and 34. As the Bible speaks here prophetically, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. So where did the stone which represents Christ and his kingdom, strike the image and smash it to bits. On the feet, the weakest part, the rock is solid, unbreakable, with no cracks or weakness, or it cannot do its job. What is the antidote that protects the last hour church from the poisonous effects of the Antichrist and false prophets? It's in the text. First, that church knows that it is, as we turn back to one of our key texts here for today, 1 John 2, 18. Back to 1 John 2, verse 18. Church knows its time. 1 John chapter 2, looking again at verse 18, where John, the beloved, writes, Children, it is the last hour. 
And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So it knows, as we see in 1 John 4, 3 now, if we turn there, just a few pages over. 1 John 4, 3, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Because of its careful study of the Bible, it knows its enemy and how that enemy operates. It does not ignore that reality, sweep it under the rug, pretend it is not so. The evidence of the Bible match evidence of the Bible matches the events of history. So this last hour, 1 John 2:18, church is keenly aware of the insidious, elusive, diabolical power of the spirit of the Antichrist. Its deep study of the Bible enables it to identify the Antichrist power and so be prepared to meet it. Second, that church has been, if we turn to 1 John 2, verse 20, what God has given his church, 1 John 2, verse 20, it's been anointed. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. And if we turn now to verse 27, where is this anointing coming from? 1 John 2, 27, But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So we see here that the anointing that you receive from him, that's speaking of the Father and the Son, abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. God will be our teacher. That's what God wants, is, is a personal, intimate relationship with each of us. The members of the last hour church are not awed by human or ecclesiastical claims of superior spiritual knowledge, not awed and seduced by pomp, ceremony, wealth, and power. It knows that the humblest person with the Bible in his hands has at his disposal more wisdom when it comes to the knowledge of salvation than all secular and religious authorities combined. Why? Because lies do not have the same source as truth. Truth comes from the living word, Jesus Christ, and is revealed in his written word, inspired by the spirit of truth. Lies ultimately come from Satan, are broadcast about by the spirit of Antichrist. If we turn to 1 John 4, 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So to protect us from the spirit of error, we must have the spirit of truth. Now our third element here. Third, the last hour church abides in the truth which it has heard from the beginning. And because this is so, its members abide in the Son and in the Father. We see this in 1 John 2 and verse 24. Let's turn there. Read that text together. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Abide means to stay with it, certain of it, unmoved by falsehood. It means to remain and to continue. Notice what Jesus said in John 8, verse 31, which of course John heard Jesus say these words. John 8, verse 31. Turn there to the Gospel of John. 
John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Can we say amen to that? It's to abide, to remain, to continue, to persevere. So he did not say we are his disciples if we say so, merely a profession, but only if we abide, to stay, to remain, to continue in his word. Sola Scriptura. Protestants ought to know that. We turn now to 1 John 2, 5 through 6, how we're called to walk even as Christ walked. 1 John 2, 5 through 6. 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we're called to walk as Jesus did in this earth. Only on that basis and with that authority can the last hour, church, and we turn back to 1 John 4.1, four few chapters here, 1 John 4.1, so we can test what's going on. 1 John 4.1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Luther is quoted as saying, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every position of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly, I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Ellen White, in Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3, page 281, wrote these words by the Holy Spirit. And I quote, If God abhors one sin above another, of which his people are guilty, it is doing nothing in case of an emergency. Indifference and neutrality in a religious crisis is regarded of God as a grievous crime and equal to the very worst type of hostility against God. We could say that it's not a pretty picture if God's final church does not remain faithful to the word, which, where do we get the word of God? You know, if we think back to John's gospel, where he even began, John 1 and verse 1, let's turn there together. How are we going to remain and abide in these last days? It's only through Christ, the word. John 1 and verse 1. John's gospel, which of course, same apostle that wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in Revelation, echoes so much of the, the life and ministry of Jesus and of creation. John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if we turn to Genesis 1, verse 1, you can imagine that John had this in mind as Moses, under the Holy Spirit, penned these words of inspiration. Genesis 1, 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
So we see here that the universe, the earth, human beings and everything in it were created by Jesus, the Word. And in his gospel, John speaks of the spiritual recreation of mankind through faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in these memorable words. If we turn there to John 3 and verse 16. Many of us have it likely memorized in various translations. John 3 and verse 16, once again from the ESV. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Because God loves the world of humanity that he made, he saves the world of humanity that he made. The connection between the world he made and the world he saves is Jesus, the connection. So we go to 1 John 1, 1 through 1-5, and now we see the connection between creation in Genesis 1-1, Christ the Word in John 1-1, and the beginning of 1 John 1. 1 John, verses 1 through 5. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Jesus is the word of God, and he is the light of men. He knows the way. He shows the way. He illuminates the way. He is the way. The only way to salvation and eternal life. In this letter that is so relevant and timely for Seventh-day Adventist Christians, John is not talking about the beginning, but about the end. As we turn back to what is one of our theme texts of this series, 1 John 2.18, you see the appeal in John's heart, 1 John 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. The historical contexts are very different. Everything he says in this letter has to be understood in the light of the last hour. The important thing to remember is that in the beginning was the Word, as we saw in John 1, 1. And the same is true in the end. Beginning and end are connected in Christ, who says, if we go to Revelation 22 and verse 12, Revelation 22 and verse 12, these words of inspiration, Revelation 22 and verse 12. Revelation 22, 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. So, thankfully, Christ is also the Alpha. We go to verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the the end. 
Praise the Lord for his completeness of salvation. Meaning, he was there at the beginning and he will be there at the end as he has been all along the way. Not just with reference to the way you and I view the world of humanity, events, calamities, history, but our own personal histories. Remembering these words of hope and faith in Philippians 1, verse 6. If you turn there, Philippians 1 and verse 6. Sounds like some of you know that from heart. And uh, such a blessing. I actually sing this verse many times. I love to sing scripture songs. Philippians 1.6, as the scripture says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. So the God who created us and gave us new life in Christ will finish what he started. He will finish the job. The saving of the world goes on until the very end, and God's people, his church, are a part of that mission to the very end. The object of God's love is the fallen world. John 3 and verse 16. We turn there again. I don't think we can over-meditate on this verse, the depth of God's love for us. It was Christ's favorite theme, and it became John's as well. John 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So it is also the object of his church's love. If Christ lives in us, we will love the world as he loved it and go forth to minister. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Christ's parting words before ascending to heaven. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Praise the Lord for God's presence with us to the end. The church made up of God's redeemed people is in the world with the specific mission of making disciples, followers of Jesus. I just have to pause here and say that Pastor Holmes truly did that in my life. Uh, It wasn't just a year or two or three. It was seven years of being able to be discipled and mentored and serve alongside with him. And we traveled many, many miles together to many ministerial meetings, camp meetings. And um, I just praise the Lord for the, the gift of true discipleship. Discipleship is when you invest your life into someone else. And that's what Jesus did with his disciples. That's what Pastor Holmes did with me as well. May we go and do likewise, ministering to others, taking them into our, our very hearts. So for this world and its dark times, this is the world's only hope. Provided the church is faithful, uncompromisingly true to the word and fulfills its mission. The world, John says, if we go to 1 John 2, verse 2, is in need of the very gift that Jesus is offering. We are to be the messengers. 1 John 2 and verse 2, including all. 1 John 2 and verse 2, Christ, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Praise the Lord. And 
to the church that has a mission in the world, he says in verse 3, 1 John 2, 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. So true love leads to obedience. While John's focus is on the church of the last hour, he sees that church against the background of the reality of the world as it is in that hour. He doesn't have his head in the clouds. He's very much aware of the condition of the world in which the last hour church is to bear its witness and fulfill its mission. We must be aware of that too. It is that condition that should stir the church and powerfully motivate it for the kind of sacrificial work demanded by the last hour. So let's take a look at the condition of the world of the last hour and the demands that reality places on the church in that hour. So we need to know what we are up against and respond in the spirit of Jesus. Isn't that true? That Christ-like, winsome, humble, affectionate, meek spirit where we yearn for the salvation of those around us, that they would know and taste Jesus, his word as well. The New Testament uses three Greek words that have been translated world in English. One is oikomene, meaning the populated world. We see this in Luke 4, verse 5, if we turn there. Luke 4, verse 5. Luke chapter 4 and verse 5. We're looking at that first concept of the world in Scripture. Greek oikomene, populated world. Luke 4 and verse 5. And the Scripture reads, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. So that's that, speaking of the populated world, oikomene. Another is aeon, usually meaning age or like the word eon, including the time and space. Uh, The third is cosmos, meaning order or system, and the material world, which we see in Romans 1.20. If we turn there, we'll look at the third use of concept of world. Romans 1 and verse 20. Romans 1 and verse 20. The scripture tells us, Romans 1 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So that's the the use of the word cosmos, order or system. And we especially see this word in connection with John 3.16, which we'll turn there again because this is the word cosmos here used. John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world, cosmos, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John uses cosmos throughout his letter because he is talking about mankind as a whole that has been alienated from God and is under the control of Satan. He is also referring to the complex of ideas by which humanity has organized itself into nations and societies and cultures. It is not a pretty picture. Jesus describes this condition in metaphorical words. and We see this here taken from Matthew 9, 16 and 17. Turn there, Matthew 9, 16 and 17. 
Matthew 9, verse 16 and 17. Where the scripture tells us, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So the world of fallen humanity is full of hate for God's people and His church. The condition of the world in the last hour is that of widespread hostility toward God, His truth, and His people. And that hostility should not surprise God's people who know and understand His word. They need to be ready for it and prepared to meet it. God has told us that Satan is, if we go to Revelation 12, verse 17, what is the devil trying to do? Revelation 12 and verse 17. Revelation 12, verse 17. Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon, speaking of Satan, became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So we see here in Revelation 12 and verse 17, Satan's anger towards the church, his desire to tear it down. But thankfully, even though Satan is furious with the woman, which is his church, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep or revere and observe the commandments of God and hold to, meaning cling, will not let go of the testimony of Jesus. We saw in Revelation 12, 17. Thankfully, Jesus prepares us to... And he tells us that you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many of you will fall away, they can't take it, and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. It's a somber reality. But we have a promise. This is Matthew 24. We'll go back to verse 9. 24. Jesus' own words of promise to keep us in this church of the last hour. Matthew 24. Matthew 24, starting in verse 9. Matthew 24, and starting in verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another, and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Jesus made that promise to us. Then John writes in 1 John 3 verse 13, so that we would not be surprised by this, 1 John 3 and verse 13. 1 John 3, verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So we see here that the proof of that hatred goes way back to Cain, who did what? 1 John 3, 12. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. 
And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. So we are now beginning to face the hostility of Western culture toward Christian truth and ideals. Such hostility can be expected to increase, especially in the last hour. We see in 1 John 4, 1, what we have to contend with. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Indeed, there are many false messages, prophets, out there to deceive. Where did they come from and who do they represent? See in 1 John 4, verse 5. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. They are produced in the context of that hostility, which takes many philosophical forms. And so they speak, teach, and share ideas that represent the thinking of that world and that support its hostile views. And they are listened to by that hostile world because they are saying what that world wants to hear. John calls them deceivers. The arch-deceiver produces his own disciples. We see this in 2 John 7. 2 John 7. So just one book over. A little letter of 2 John, verse 7. 2 John 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. To the church, John urges in verse 8 of the same letter, 2 John, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. So let me ask you, everyone that's here at this seminar today, do you want to watch for and retain that full reward of what the gospel promises us? Are we willing to stay faithful to the end? And can we, in remembering Dr. Holmes' legacy, who as I shared earlier, just passed away a few hours ago, can we all choose to stay faithful so that we'll meet him on that glorious day when Jesus comes and all deception is forever at an end? That's your decision. Would you like to raise your hand? Amen. Good to see those hands raised. Let's kneel in prayer as we ask the Lord to just bring this message home to our hearts and keep us faithful through Jesus by the word. Loving Father, we are so thankful that you've given us a message for this church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church of the last hour, the church that our dear brother, who's now resting in Jesus, Dr. Holmes, loves so much. And Lord, it's a love that you put in my heart and our hearts as well. May we all choose day by day to stay faithful, to endure no matter what you allow us to go through. Because even though the devil is trying to destroy and kill and and steal, you have promised life and life more abundantly. And we thank you that that's not just here, but especially in the hereafter. Encourage our hearts, strengthen us, Lord, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus through meditation and communion with you and your word. We pray for the Holy Spirit to make this our experience. In Jesus' name, amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.